Why don't you take your Bibles and turn them again to Mark chapter 6. We're continuing in this chapter in this passage this morning in Mark 6, and, and we have a very interesting passage on discipleship. We finally get to see the twelve share in the mission and ministry of Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark is slowly but surely building up to this climax in regards to discipleship. It comes at the end of chapter 8. You have Peter confess that Jesus is the Christ. You have Jesus confess that he has to die and rise again. And, and then he gives these very radical statements on, on discipleship, what it really means and looks like to follow him. We'll get to Mark chapter 8 in due time. But for now in our passage, we start to see discipleship in action as it comes time for the disciples to start sharing in the work of Jesus. So far, Jesus has led the way. And they've followed. He's done the teaching, the preaching, the healing. They've just been watching. But now it's their turn. And forget just getting your feet wet. They're being thrown right into the deep end. And, and now it's time for them to, to teach, to preach, to heal, and to make disciples themselves. And it's not going to be easy. And we learn, especially in this passage, that following Jesus, it's not always so easy. Sharing in his mission is not easy. Being his representative is not easy. The task he sets before them is difficult. It's it's a hard sell, what they're being called to do. It requires total commitment and self-sacrifice. And I'm sure marketers today would tell Jesus he's got it all wrong. And Jesus, you've got to woo people. You've got to be savvy. You've got to really play this up. Don't downplay all the costs. Puff up all the the positive results. People don't want to hear about the negative. You've got to make discipleship sound easy and fun for people to want to do this. And we're used to motivational speaking like this, and you see it all the time. For example, have you ever heard of an infomercial promoting the most difficult way to lose weight? Like, here, use this product and work really hard, and you'll lose a little bit of weight. Because really, that's how it works. But they never say that. It's never that. It's always the opposite. It's, here, use this, do practically nothing, and you'll lose weight. It's amazing. Anyone can do it. As a side note, if you ever see an ad promoting weight loss in three minutes a day, just you know something's wrong. Something has to be wrong with that. But that's what it's all about now. How can I put in the least amount of effort and get out the maximum results? And the same for cooking now. Forget slaving away in the kitchen when you can just have a magic bullet. I'm sure you all have heard of this little blender-like contraption. And its ad is it will take care of any task in the kitchen, any task, in 10 seconds or less. It's amazing. Who needs anything anymore? And we're so used to this culture of ease that it seems like we're becoming allergic to hard work. If anything takes our time and effort, we don't want it. We don't want to do it anymore. And sadly, I think some churches have clued into this, which is why a lot of them are offering what we could call a diet Christianity. They propose an easy blend of discipleship. There's no real cost involved, no effort required and you can even do it from home now you can spiritually you can get spiritually rich three minutes a day on couch just watching the tv i mean is following jesus easy well don't get me wrong what what did jesus say he said come to me all who are weary and heavy laden i will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light in a sense, following Jesus is incredibly easy because he takes us away from the burden of the law and sin. He places us under grace. And there's nothing as carefree and easy as living under grace, in a sense. But the same Jesus who says, come, also says, go. 
Everyone who's been called has been commissioned. And you know, Matthew 28:19, for example, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. If you've been called, you've been commissioned. And there's a lot that God expects you to do. There's, there's some work involved. And it's not always easy. Self-sacrifice is required. Self-denial is required. And the time is short. You better get cracking. Eternity hangs in the balance. So you need to get busy making disciples. And, you know, by the way, expect rejection. Expect tribulation. Expect hardship, hatred, strife, ridicule, scorn. If you're actually faithful to do this work, a lot of people will just hate you for it. And when you think about that, it makes you wonder, like, really? Who's going to sign up for that? Who wants that? Who's going to buy that product? It's, it's, this is a hard sell. But you, you see, and we start to see that the discipleship Jesus presents, it's far more radical than what you might be accustomed to today. Who would sign up for that? No one would sign up for that on their own. But when God makes you alive, when you're born again, you're compelled to follow Jesus despite the cost. It's one of the signs of true salvation. You will follow wherever he goes and In our passage from Mark 6 today, we see Jesus send out his 12 closest disciples on their first ministry mission. It's like the first short-term mission trip. He's testing them and he's preparing them at the same time for the road ahead, even after he's gone. Jesus, he's, he's the head of the church. He will always be the head of the church, but he's preparing them and he's using them as his boots on the ground. He still does that today. He's getting them ready for this task. It's not going to be easy. So this mission that they're about to go on, it expands their understanding of what it means to be his disciple, and it's preparing them for all the challenges ahead when they start this little thing called the church. We finished last time, Mark chapter 6, verse 6, kind of like a transition verse, and look there at the end of verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, it says he was going around the villages teaching. Last week, week we relived Christ's visit to Nazareth, which is his hometown. And of all people, you would expect his his hometown to embrace him and accept him as the Messiah. But we found just the opposite. They were among the first and foremost people in Israel to reject him. They just wanted nothing to do with him. Pride and prejudice got in their way. They turned him away. The Nazarenes, we found last week, displayed an unbelievable unbelief. But you see, during that trip, the 12 disciples were right there. They were there the whole time. They witnessed Jesus get pretty much the door slammed in his face in his own hometown. And here we're learning they're next. They're up to bat. Jesus leaves Nazareth. He begins a third tour of Galilee, preaching around Galilee. He's going from town to town. Now the little towns, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But there's, there's too many. There's too many of these little towns all over the place for him to reach. So for the first time, we see him multiply himself. And he's sending out his top 12 to preach for him. The time has come for them to be fishers of men. And we learn from this that Christ's disciples, they can expect to share in some of his work. They can expect to share in some of his success. But they can expect to share in some of his rejection as well. It was true for the 12 on this mission. And it's still true today for any of his disciples. Well, let's, let's get into it start off by reading our passage, Mark 6, 7 through 13. Follow along now as I read this next passage. Verse 7, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. 
And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. We're going to spend our time going through this passage in more detail, but you can probably already see for yourself it's it's a very historical passage, meaning these verses relate to a very specific historical circumstance. It's, this is telling us about Christ sending out the twelve on this one very short specific occasion. So it's valid for us to wonder, okay, well, how much of this is for us? Is this telling us what we should be doing on our mission? And we're going we're gonna to find out. We're going to start off by looking at seven descriptions of the first discipleship mission. Seven descriptions of the first discipleship mission. But then we're going to follow this up with seven principles of the ongoing discipleship mission. Some work needs to be done to bridge the gap between the then and the now. And we're going to do that. Hopefully show you how this does relate to our mission today. But to start off, we're going to look at this first discipleship mission as seen through the eyes of the twelve. These seven descriptions of the first discipleship mission. Mission, And we'll begin with this. Number one, their mission involved a pairing. Their mission involved a pairing. Verse 7 again, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. Now first, I think you probably know, but Jesus had more than twelve disciples. He had many more following him around, but the twelve were more and more becoming a special group, a select group of men. He already called them out to be the twelve. Now he's calling them out again. But this time, he's calling them to send them. He's sending them out on this mission, and they're, they're to go duo duo, is what it says, two by two. These are the first dynamic duos. And what's great is that in Matthew, in Matthew's account, he actually lists the, name of the, the names of the twelve, and he lists them in pairs. So we actually find out how Jesus made these pairings. And first, we learn he kept the brothers together. Peter and Andrew were together. James and John were together. That's like his A-team. And then Philip and Bartholomew went together. Thomas and Matthew went together. That's, that's like the B team. And it was followed up by James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus were a pair. And then good old Simon the Zealot with Judas Iscariot were a pair. And that's the C team. And I know you're wondering, wait, was Judas, did Judas go on this mission? Did he do this? Is he preaching? And he was. He sure was. Must have been a, kind of an awkward pair, though, the zealot and the hypocrite. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about Judas later. He was there. For now, Jesus sends them off two by two. Why pairs? Well, it's, it's, there's a lot of wisdom in going in pairs. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, two are better than one. Ministry's hard, so having someone else to encourage you, support you, protect you is a good thing. But more importantly, like the Old Testament says time and time again, any fact is to be confirmed on a matter of two or three witnesses. This is a special preaching mission. And they were going to find out who was for or against Jesus in Israel. And for those who rejected, well, their rejection would be confirmed by two witnesses. That's the main reason. Now, speaking of this preaching mission, as these 
No-name disciples traveled throughout Israel preaching the kingdom, preaching Jesus. Why, why would anyone believe them? Why should anyone believe them? Their itinerant preachers were a dime a dozen back then, so why believe them? Well, they should believe because of their power. This is the second description of their mission. Their mission involved power, secondly. Their mission involved power. Verse 7, again. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. In the past couple of chapters in Mark, we've, we've witnessed Christ's total power over nature and demons and disease and even death. But his power didn't come from muscle. It came from authority. Because of who he was, namely God, what he said goes. He speaks and things listen. He tells a storm to stop, it stops. He tells a demon to flee, it flees. He tells leprosy to just go away, it goes away. And he tells death to even give someone back, and they come back. His power to work wonders was tied to his authority. His disciples didn't have that power because they didn't have that authority until now. Here, Jesus is delegating his authority and therefore his power to them, which means they are becoming more and more his true representatives. We call them apostles. We'll see that later in Mark. They will share in his mission, and to display their newfound authority, they will also share in his authenticating signs and wonders. Matthew, in his version, tells us even more about what Jesus said, Matthew 10, 7 and 8. He said, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. They will share in the mission of Jesus, which is to proclaim the kingdom of God. And to validate that message, they are given his signs. This includes casting out demons, which is what Mark mentions, as well as healing all manners of sickness. But for the first time, we finally see them do everything Jesus has done. He's been teaching, preaching, healing. Now finally they will be doing the exact same things. So I'm sure they're excited to hear that. They're like, well, it's our turn. We get to tap into some of this power. It's going to be a good trip. Makes you wonder, okay, what else did Jesus tell them? Is there anything they might need for this trip? Well, number three, their mission involved the provision. Their mission involved the provision. Verse 8. He continues, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. Now, they probably weren't too excited to hear this part of his commission because we learned what were they to bring on the trip? Well, basically nothing. This is a bare-bones trip. What they were currently wearing, that's about it. They could take nothing else, in essence. He says no bread. Where they were going, they would have to rely on the hospitality of others just even to feed them. On occasion, when I go on backpacking trips into the wilderness, it's always my intention to find my own food, like through hunting or fishing. But you know what? I know. I don't really know what I'm doing. So I always pack food. I'm not stupid. I'm going to pack food. I don't want to starve. But they didn't have that luxury. They could not pack any food whatsoever. He says no bag. It's like a traveler's bag, a knapsack filled with some basic traveling necessities, but nothing, not for them, no bag. Imagine going on a trip with no luggage, not even your little toiletries bag, nothing. Then he says no money. You know, if you didn't have food and clothes, at least if you had your credit card, you'd feel safe. 
Like, well, at least I can buy something. But they couldn't even buy food and clothes. They were totally dependent. Some extreme traveling conditions. Would you, would you sign up for that mission? No bread, no bag, no money. Now, Jesus did add they can take along a staff, which is like their walking stick and their sandals. He's not sending them out barefoot on, to travel through miles of rocky terrain. But the picture is whatever they have on them right now, they can take with them, but, but that's it. They weren't to acquire anything else for this journey. And that's actually what Matthew adds to the picture. Some people at first think there's a discrepancy between Matthew and Luke and Mark, because in Mark, Jesus says, you can take a staff, you can take sandals. But in Matthew, Jesus says, no staff, no sandals. And so what, what gives? Well, we know Matthew, he's recording this really long version of what Christ was telling them, and he said a lot more. And in that extended conversation in Matthew, Jesus specifically says what not to acquire for the journey. They're not to acquire money or bag or two coats or sandals or staff. And the implication, again, they're just to leave right then and there. Just go. What you have, take it with you and leave and acquire nothing for the journey. And when it comes to the sandals and the staff, they weren't to obtain a second set. They had one on them. That's fine. But no extras, as was common practice. Just like he said, do not take a second tunic. Just what you have, take it, go. That's the picture. But just imagine what traveling like this would actually be like. The closest you would get is if you lost your stuff. Imagine you're overseas, you're in a foreign country, you're alone, and you lost your luggage and your wallet and your passport. You have nothing but the clothes on your back. Does that sound like fun? Would you ever do that on purpose? What what do you do? What would you do? What can you do? You're forced to rely on the hospitality of others. You have no choice. You have to rely on people. And you have to rely on God. You're forced to trust God and ask him to provide for you because you're clearly helpless on your own. And this is why Jesus is orchestrating these circumstances. He's sending them on a bare-bones mission because it's going to force them to trust God. After all, they needed to completely trust God when it came to the spiritual nature of their trip. Spiritually, if God wasn't going to work, if they weren't trusting him to work, nothing would happen. No one would accept. They would have no success. But what better way for them to really learn this than by making them completely dependent on God to provide for the material side of their trip? Spiritually, materially, they were totally dependent on God to work. And that was on purpose. It was going to grow their faith. And that's the provision they really needed on this trip and for their future trip, their lifelong ministry. They needed faith. This, this mission was designed to bring their faith to the surface. Now, God was going to provide for them, though. God did provide. Jesus assures them of that, which leads to number four. Their mission involved a place. Their mission involved a place. God would provide for their material needs, and he would do so through the hospitality of others. Verse 10. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. They were going to have a place to stay. Someone would give them a room. Now, it's very common back then to show hospitality to strangers, to travelers moving through town. You invite them in. Just imagine that today. Some traveler shows up at your doorstep, says, hey, can I stay with you, you and your family tonight? You would probably get your gun or call the police or something like that. But back then, it was quite expected. You just hang around the city square or the city gates long enough, someone will invite you in. They'll take care of you. 
But on this trip, the disciples weren't just to wait around. They, this was not an occasional trip, or a casual trip, rather. This was a preaching mission. As they entered a town, they would immediately start teaching and preaching and talking to people. And all the while, Matthew says, they were looking for a worthy household. Looking for some, some family, some household that they feared God. They actually were responding to what they were saying. And the first such invite they received from a worthy household, he says, go there, stay there till you leave town. That's it. You go there and you just stay there. God has provided. There is to be no manipulation, no working their way into better and better living conditions, using their ministry to get ahead. It's not a vacation. Whoever hosted them, no matter how simple and humble their circumstances were, even if they're sleeping in a shack, doesn't matter. They were to thank God for his provision, be content, and just stay there. This probably wouldn't work out too well today. You know, most celebrities, and even now I hear some pastors, when they go to speak or serve somewhere, they have a long list of demands that they expect to be in place. You know, their dressing room must be precisely 72 degrees. They have to have a case of their favorite drink waiting for them and uh, an array of gourmet catered food. Or even, even crazy stories like all the brown M&Ms must be removed from the candy jar, as the famous story goes. But this obviously should not be the attitude of disciples on a mission. It's not a vacation. It's a mission. And like Paul said in Philippians 4, which he wrote while sitting in jail, by the way, and we, are lear- we are to learn to be content in whatever circumstances. Whether we have a lot or little. Whether prosperity or poverty, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the mission. Be content. These disciples were to trust God to provide enter a worthy house, stay there until they left town. Now that being said, not every house they entered and not every town they entered would be so welcoming and so accepting of their mission. And this is why we see number five, their mission involved a pronouncement. Their mission involved a pronouncement. Like verse 11. He says, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. This may sound a little bit shocking, especially coming from Jesus. What he says here, he's first telling them basically to expect rejection. As they go from house to house, village to village, not everyone's going to receive them or listen to them. They're not going to be so happy with this message of Jesus and the Messiah and the kingdom. And the disciples knew Jesus is not kidding around when he says this. They just watched him basically get thrown out of his own hometown. And now it's their turn. So they know that that's going to happen to us in some of these towns. What's more shocking, though, is how Jesus tells them to respond to such rejection. I mean, what would you expect Jesus to tell them to do here? You're sharing the gospel with someone. They just shut the door in your face. They reject you. So what would you expect Jesus to say? Okay, now just say this. He's like, have a nice day. Well, thanks for listening. We appreciate you listening. Have a nice day. Sorry, you know, Christianity doesn't work out for you. We respect your disbelief. You kind of expect Jesus to give them some nice platitude here, but he gives them just the opposite. He says, when they reject you, as you leave town, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And the symbolism, you might miss it, but any Jew would have immediately understood. 
After traveling through unclean Gentile territory, Jews would shake the dust off their feet before they re-entered the Holy Land, both to signify that where they were coming from was unholy and defiled, and where they're entering was pure. It was a way of showing the place you're leaving is, is unworthy. It's just condemned. And that's what Jesus is telling them to do here. He's instructing them to visibly display the condemnation that these towns are heaping upon themselves by rejecting Jesus. Because remember, the disciples at this point, they were like apostles, meaning they were his full representatives. And in Jewish law, you reject the messenger, you reject the sender. So as these houses or towns rejected the disciples, they were rejecting Jesus. And if you do that, there's no hope for you. There's no hope. You just leave yourself unclean, unholy, condemned. You can see, this is serious stuff. This was a serious mission that they're going on. The disciples were to function like sifters. They were separating the true people of God from the false people of God. Who's going to really believe the report? Who among Israel is a true worshiper? Of God, and who's not? This mission was like drawing a line down Israel and visibly separating the believers from the unbelievers. But now is a good time to ask, though, what what were they really saying that got pe- that would get people so riled up that would cause them to slam the door in their face? Well, we learned number six: their mission involved preaching. Their mission involved preaching. Look again at verse twelve. Here their ministry begins. He says, they went out and preached that men should repent. Here we see the 12. They, they finally launch. They set sails on this mission. And what were they preaching? Repentance. It's just funny. That's, that's what Jesus preached too. Repentance. And what does that mean? It means they were calling people to turn away from their sins and to turn toward God. It was a ministry of alignment, getting them aligned with the true God. Obviously, they weren't preaching a full gospel because Jesus hadn't even died and risen yet. But they were preaching to get people to turn their hearts away from sin and what they were living for and toward God and his Messiah. But you have to understand this. This is a a really big point. That to the Jews, the message of repentance sounded crazy. It's crazy. Why? Why? Because they didn't need to repent, they thought. Because they were the children of Abraham. I mean, they already were God's people. Why why are you telling us to follow God? We're Jews. We already follow God. Why why are you telling us to turn to God? We're we're already Abraham's descendants. This is one of the most difficult pills for them to swallow. The fact that they're not saved just because they're Abraham's descendants, because they're literal Jews. Being a Jew doesn't mean salvation. It doesn't come by first birth. It comes by second birth, new birth. And even they had to, had to realize that they were lost sinners. They needed to see their sin, repent, turn from it, and then desperately cling to God and his Messiah for salvation. But that message scandalized so many of these very religious Jews. They're very religious, but religion doesn't save you. They were trusting in their ceremonies and laws and rituals to make them right with God, but God doesn't care if your heart doesn't seek him. And in reality, the Jewish nation at the time was quite godless and hypocritical. 
And now, hindsight, it's no wonder that they rejected their own Savior. They were trusting in their own righteousness to save them. So they had no need of Christ's righteousness to really save them. They were lost. And as another side note, that's why Jesus is choosing 12 apostles. That 12 is not an accidental number, given the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a not-so-subtle indictment on Israel's failure, especially given the fact that not one of these 12 disciples comes from the religious establishment. Not a single one is a Pharisee or a scribe or a rabbi or a priest. These are all just non-religious people. But that's on purpose because none of the supposed religious establishment was fit or saved to lead God's people. And so he is choosing a new leadership for a new people. And that is the Twelve. And needless to say then, their message was going to rub a lot of Jews the wrong way. Many would stumble over their preaching and reject them. But it's not like the disciples didn't offer some proof. And so what they were saying was true, and this is the last point here. Their mission involved proof. Number seven, their mission involved proof. Last verse, 13. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Jesus gave them his authority like we talked about, his power. They used it in mercy and compassion. They healed the sick. They delivered the possessed. Just real real quick, it mentions oil. Let me just explain that. Oil back then was a very common medicine, your all-purpose medicine. But these miracles, these healings were instantaneous and miraculous. And last time I checked, olive oil doesn't do that. And so that's why they were using this oil symbolically. It's like a living parable. The oil wasn't actually healing people at this time. The Jews clearly understood oil to be a symbol for God's spirit working. And it was a visible sign of the invisible spirit working to heal them. But that's what these healings were. They were signs. It's like Nicodemus said to Jesus, we know no one can work these signs unless they're from God. They, they pointed back to God. They validated and authenticated his identity as the divine Messiah for Christ. And the same is true of the apostles. Their signs authenticated their message and validated their authority as his representatives. Some people would heed these signs and believe, but others, just like they did to Christ, would disregard the signs and reject. But this was their mission. This was the first mission of discipleship. For them, again, it was important testing. This was valuable training, preparing them for the lifelong mission of founding the church, which we're still a part of today. Their mission, we're the fruit of that first mission. Now, speaking of today, though, we mentioned this at the beginning. You go through this passage, you look at this, and again, it seems very historical, meaning all these verses, they refer to a specific time, a specific place, a specific people. This is talking about the 12 on their short mission. So again, we wonder, what, what does this apply to us, or how does this apply to us? What does this mean for us? Are we to get from this that we should be going out two by two? Should missionary agencies send their people with no food, no money, no provisions at all? Is that what we're being told to do? Should missionaries just rely on the hospitality of others? See, that's not the point. I hope you can understand. This is a very good and classic example of of a descriptive passage. 
This passage is just describing for us the historic mission of the twelve on this occasion. It's not necessarily prescribing these things for us today. That being said, there are some very valuable principles underlying their mission. And these do prove useful for us today because we have the same Lord. And in general, we have the same mission. Do you understand that you have a mission? That Christ has commissioned you. You If you claim to be his disciple, his follower, you have a mission. Do you know that? Do you know what your mission is? It's in general the same as theirs. We said before, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations. You're You're to go and tell people about Jesus. And that doesn't mean you have to be an overseas missionary, but you have been commissioned to be a witness to those around you of the gospel. Your next door neighbor could be your mission field. But you have a mission. And so listen, if that mission is absent from your life, something's very wrong. Something's very, very wrong with you. If you just think, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? It's been a long, long time. Maybe never. If that's true, something is terribly wrong with your spiritual life. Your commission is serious. And if you never take it seriously, it just begs the question, are you, are you really a disciple? Those who have truly been changed by the good news, they're compelled to tell others. You've been so overwhelmed by the good news, you can't not tell other people. Something's wrong. Again, this passage is not telling us directly about our mission. But it does give us some useful principles for our mission, which is to make disciples. And so we want to ask, well, what does that mission look like for us? Today, what does our mission involve? Okay, we're not to go out two by two. But what does our mission involve? And what principles can we draw from their first mission for this? And a little bit of time left. I'm going to do this in rapid fire. But let me give you seven principles of the ongoing discipleship mission. We saw from the passage seven descriptions of the first discipleship mission. But now we're going to draw out seven principles of the ongoing discipleship mission. And number one, your mission involves concession. Your mission involves concession, meaning denial. And look, no vow of poverty is required to be a Christian. It's not true. Later, as Jesus prepared his disciples for a life after he was gone, he told them, you know what, bring a money belt, bring a bag, even get a sword, Luke 22, 36. You you need to be prepared. That's not what he's saying. But our mission still involves concession, meaning denial. You have to give something up. What do you give up? Yourself. You give up yourself. Like Jesus said, you want to follow me, you would deny yourself. It means you put him first, you put the mission first, above your personal comforts in life. For some of you, that even means giving up your sense of fear. I'm scared to share the gospel. What will they think of me? How about you sacrifice that and do it anyway? Your purpose in life as a Christian is not to live in a middle-class suburban home, save lots of money, and retire comfortably. That's not your mission. Your purpose is to please the Lord, make disciples, impact eternity, and at times that involves some concession. So are you willing to sacrifice some of your needs and comfort for this mission? Will you give some of your time and some of your energy, some of your money for this work, the work of the gospel? Some level of denial is still required. 
Secondly, your mission involves confidence. And by this we mean trust in God. You know, the real purpose of Jesus telling them no bread, no bag, no money was to force them to trust God for the mission. The real provision they needed was not food, it was faith. And that was really going to serve them because they, they were desperate for God to work. He needed to change these people and they needed him to do that. That requires trust. And that, that's still true for us today. God will provide for all of our needs, but trust is required. And when it comes to the mission, your mission looks a little bit different. You don't have to go out with no provisions whatsoever. You can take some money and some food along. Okay, that's not the deal. But you still desperately need God to work. You're talking with your neighbor, your loved one. You desperately need God to provide for their salvation. And so the same trust and confidence in him is needed. Do you place your confidence in God to work in the lives of others? Do you rely on yourself or do you rely on God? Next, your mission involves contentment. Contentment. I'll be brief at this one, but your mission doesn't depend on your bank account. Whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter. You don't have to wait until you're rich to make an impact, and you're not disqualified if you're poor from making an impact. Because if basically your life status, it doesn't matter. You can be in prison like Paul was and still do the mission. And so the lesson is to be content with whatever you have, wherever you're at, whatever God has provided for you in life. Just be content with that. Be thankful for that. And realize your mission, it's bigger than the things of this world. You need to realize you should be living for eternity and you need to be ministering with eternity in view. And we're not saying wealth is the enemy, vow of poverty is required, but look, wherever you're at, be content. And then don't let the things of this world entrap you and distract you from the mission, as all too often happens. We have a more important work than the things of this world. So be content and get to the mission. Number four, your mission involves compassion. Your mission involves compassion. Jesus enabled the twelve to to heal, to deliver people miraculously, just like he did. Why? Well, again, these were signs authenticating their message But at the same time, there were acts of real mercy and compassion. When Jesus saw human suffering, he never just turned a blind eye. He always reached out to solve human suffering. He never ignored physical problems. And of all people, Jesus knows the soul is more important than the body. But he never ignored physical problems. He fed people when they were hungry. He healed them when they were sick. And your mission should involve that same mercy and compassion. You see the hungry, you see the sick, your heart should go out for them. Look what the fall has done to humanity. Now granted, you don't have the sign gifts. You can't miraculously heal them. You can't multiply bread. You can't solve those problems like that. But with whatever means you do have, you can reach out and minister to those who are needy. This part can and should be a part of your ministry and a visible display of your love for others. And that said, it is true that the soul is more important than the body. And that's why, number five, your mission involves calling. Your mission involves calling. And really, the main aspect of your mission in the Great Commission itself is to make disciples. It's discipleship, it's evangelism. That's, that's number one. And this, by definition, 
involves calling people to repentance, to faith. You know, it's great to alleviate human suffering. We should. But, you know, even us, we can't stop death. We, we can't stop that. But there is a second death that we're more worried about. And we can, that, that is our mission, to stop second death, which is eternal separation from God because of sin. And we can't do that, of course, but God can, and he uses us to do that. That's part of the mission. God, by grace, has provided Jesus the Messiah to save sinners like us, to pay for our sins, to reconcile us to God. That's the good news that we are compelled to share. If you've received that yourself, reconciliation through faith in Christ, how can you not want to tell others how they too can be saved from the second death? New life comes by faith, by accepting and embracing Jesus as Savior and following him. Like Just like Romans 10, verse 13 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him who they've not believed? And how will they believe on him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And that's where your mission comes in. Whether you think of yourself as a preacher or not, you can just be a sharer if that makes you feel better. But nonetheless, you've been called and commissioned to participate in the calling of others. Your mission involves calling. So are you doing this? Are you calling people to repent and believe in Jesus? Are you in love, in love, showing them that you have a sin problem, just like I do? But the, the greater news is that Christ can deal with that sin problem if you turn to him and live for him. This really is a must. You need to be busying yourself with this work. And if you're not, again, it begs the question, are you a disciple? But as you do share, not everyone is going to listen. Some people will reject the good news even today. And so number six, your mission involves cautioning. Your mission involves cautioning. There's a warning element to your mission even today. Does this mean you're to wipe the dust off your shoes every time someone doesn't listen to you? No. Again, that was a very specific and very short mission where they were visiting the cities of Israel in a very short time determining who was for and against the Messiah. Today, we have time to invest and labor with people over the gospel. So if you're a missionary, you show up to some brand new tribe and they reject you offhand, that doesn't mean you just turn away and you don't keep trying. We, we're able to do that now. But at the same time, when you're faced with a very clear and definite rejection, a warning is needed, a cautioning against choosing your sin over Christ. You're turning down this free gift. Do you, do you really want to do that? You need to be warned. It's not motivated by hatred or spite, but rather in love. You're warning people of the consequences of their rejection. You don't want them to perish. In Jesus, there's life, but apart from him, you'll be left to your own sin. You don't want that. And so a necessary warning must be given. Lastly, number seven, your mission involves commitment. Your mission involves commitment. From start to finish, that first mission required some real commitment, and that hasn't changed. There's some work involved. You're not necessarily called to give up everything you have and go move to India. 
Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. But listen, where you live, that is the mission field. And you know what? That's, that work can't be done in 10 seconds or less. There's no magic bullet for discipleship. There's no three-minute workout that'll make someone saved and disciple them forever. This is a lifelong mission requiring effort all the way through. It's not, not easy. But will you participate or not? This commitment to the mission really is a reflection of your commitment to Christ and it has to come from your heart, from a changed heart. You can't fake this. You really can't. Otherwise, you're just going to be like Judas. Judas was there. He was one of the twelve. He went on that mission. He preached. But he was never saved. He was never born again. He was a hypocrite through and through. He was just going through the motions. To him, following Jesus was just like another religion. It was a way to get him where he wanted to go. He was never a true disciple. He was not willing to truly give up his life to follow Christ. In the end, we know he was looking out for number one. Is that you? You claim to follow Christ, but do you deny yourself and pick up your cross to do so? We said earlier, this mission, it's a real hard sell. I mean, who wants this? Following Jesus comes with a a lot of difficulties. You're going to share the gospel, and and we learn people are going to hate us and reject us just for that trying to tell them something good and they don't want it and they're going to turn on us? I mean, who, who would sign up for that? That doesn't sound fun and easy. And the answer is no one would sign up for that, naturally. But if your heart is changed and you do follow, that despite the cost, you're compelled out of a greater love. You love them enough to despise the shame, just like Jesus did, and still share with them. If you've been saved, then the Lord Jesus Christ calls you and commissions you to share in his mission of spreading the word. It's a lot of work. It's hard work. But I do hope you're encouraged by the fact that it's a blessed work. Do you know that as well? It is a blessed work. Because the Lord also calls you to share in his glory. And that can't be matched. It's an unsurpassing glory. And the glory is greater as you share in the mission, in the sufferings. Christ has done everything for us. And there's more to come, an eternity to come. And that blessing, it's all ours. And you know what? Part of that blessing includes the mission. Your mission to reach the lost, it's not a burden. That is a blessing for you to participate in. It's not that you have to tell other people about Jesus. It's that you get to tell other people about Jesus. This is the most blessed privilege, to be his witness. You think of that privilege? You can be his witness. You. We know. We're we're insignificant. We're nothing. We're just worthless sinners. But we've been saved, and now you can be made a messenger. That's remarkable. That's a blessing. It may take some work, but take it seriously. Commit. Be faithful and serve him. And if you do, then you too will hear on that last day the most blessed words of them all. Well done, my good and faithful slave. Lord, we bow before you, thanking you for this word. It's Hearing about this first mission of the twelve challenges us. We know we don't share that same specific mission, but ours is clear, to make disciples, to reach the lost. And that doesn't have to be a world away. It can be the person next to us, even in the pew or next to our house or in our work or our family members. We all know many who need to know. And I pray that we all are compelled, 
not out of guilt or duty, but love and a new birth to just share, to let people know we have the answer. It's not us, it's not our effort, but the answer is Christ. It's what he has done. Lived, died on the cross, paid for sin, rose to new life, offers new life if you would seek him and turn to him. So I pray our church is known by this, that we are serious about this work. We take it seriously. We labor and strive to please you in this regard and that we share in the blessing, the blessing that comes with even sometimes the sufferings that result. But as we draw closer to the cross and his sufferings, we draw closer to Christ's glory as well. And we look forward to the crown, the blessedness that will come when we are with you forever. I pray we are serious about sharing that now, even as we share in your work. Thank you for this privilege, and may we do you great honor. In your name we pray. Amen.